I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like in this podcast to share some of the content from the December edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to the prevalence and associated harm of engagement in self-asphyxial behaviours. In essence, the choking game. In this issue, Busse and colleagues report a systematic review looking at the prevalence of engagement in self-asphyxial, that's risk-taking behaviour, the choking game, and the associated morbidity and mortality in children and young people up to age 20 years. Awareness of self-asphyxial behaviours was high, 36 to 91% across different settings. Medium lifetime prevalence of ever engagement in young people is 7.4% based on cross-sectional data from North America, France and Colombia. There were 99 fatal cases reported in 10 different countries. Most occur when individuals engage in self-asphyxial behaviours on their own and use ligaments to engage in the process. Individuals engaging in other risk behaviours are more likely to engage in self-asphyxial behaviours, which is in line with the literature on multiple risk behaviours, which are shown to cluster and co-occur in adolescence. The public health implications of this data are complex and are discussed in the paper and in the accompanying editorial, Risk-Taking Behaviour in Adolescence, Chance Only Favours the Prepared Mind. In essence, the available evidence indicates that it's not enough for children and young people just to know about self-asphyxiating behaviours. They must also understand the social context of engaging in these behaviours and that the decisions they make about them can have significant consequences. The second article I'd like to cover in this podcast relates to children with oral clefts being at increased risk of persistent low achievement in school. Children with isolated oral clefts are at greater risk of doing less well at school than unaffected peers, although there is cross-sectional data that suggests children may catch up during adolescence. In this issue, Waby and colleagues report longitudinal data of academic achievement, that's 586 children with oral clefts, compared with 1,873 unaffected classmates. The cases are looked at from early elementary school through to high school, so longitudinally. Achievement trajectories were stable for both groups. Children with oral clefts were significantly more likely to be classified into persistent low achievement trajectories even when adjusted for socio-economic differences. That's with an odds ratio of 1.63 95 percent confidence interval 1.23 to 2.16 for reading odds ratio 1.73 confidence interval 1.19 to 2.31 for language and 1.5 confidence intervals 1.05 to 1.99 for mathematics predictors of low achievement were cleft palate only adolescent mothers low maternal education and less frequent use of prenatal care. These findings support the need for routine early screening for academic deficits in this population 
and remind us that school factors are an important part of the clinical assessment when these cases present to clinic. The third paper I'd like to discuss relates to what matters to children with chronic fatigue. Chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis is common and disabling with a significant impact on mood and school. Like any other chronic illness, well-developed patient-related outcome measures are important to inform the clinician and the researcher regarding best management. Patient-related outcome measure development starts with a patient-derived conceptual framework that defines the key outcomes to be measured. In this issue, Parslow and colleagues explore the aspects of life and health outcomes that matter to children with chronic fatigue syndrome. 25 children were interviewed with a median age of 13, 19 with their parents present. In addition, three mothers participated in a focus group. Children identified four key themes, that's health outcome domains. Symptoms that fluctuated, which caused an unpredictable reduction in both physical activity and social participation, all of which impacted on emotional well-being. These domains were influenced by both management and contextual factors. The relationship between healthcare and school was considered pivotal. The themes and interactions are illustrated with examples in Figure 1. The awareness of how children conceptualise chronic fatigue is fundamental to effective management and should inform questions asked and topics discussed in the clinic setting. These data inform the development of better patient-related outcome measures and are important and relevant to many other chronic conditions. The fourth article which I'd like to cover relates to recent advances in the management of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is the commonest inherited neuromuscular disorder in children. Over the last 25 years, life expectancy has doubled as a consequence of improvements in diagnosis, treatment and long-term care. In this issue, Strail and colleagues review the recent scientific advances and their impact and potential to impact on children with this devastating and life-limiting condition. The importance and practicalities of early diagnosis are highlighted. There's a comprehensive consensus management guideline adopted by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence and comprehensive standards of care best delivered by a dedicated multidisciplinary team. These cover multiple body systems, including muscular, respiratory, cardiac, gastrointestinal, skeletal, renal and nervous. Corticosteroids should be given early and help to maintain muscle strength and function. Multiple other drugs can be used and are listed. The research focuses on new therapies. The potential for gene therapy and the potential for cure are discussed in detail. Small molecule therapies that interfere with specific gene mutations carried by subgroups of boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy appear to be the most promising. Gene therapy has the potential to impact but is still in its infancy despite many years of intensive research. In the meantime, standardised conventional therapy 
and regular monitoring by a dedicated team of healthcare professionals should remain the cornerstone of best management. The final article I'd like to cover relates to the presentation of childhood cancers to a paediatric shared care unit. The two-week suspected cancer referral pathway is designed to reduce the time to diagnosis, although the impact in childhood is controversial. In this issue, Roskin and colleagues described the pathways by which children with cancer presented to their shared care unit. 93 children, 0 to 15 years, 2004 to 2014. Only two out of 93 were referred via the two-week pathway. Most, that's 67% of presentations, were acute via immediate GP referral or self-presentation to the emergency department, leukaemia most often by the general practitioner and solid tumours most often by self-referral. Others were referred mostly from general paediatrical specialist clinics. Medium time from symptoms to presentation was 20 days, although there was a large range, three days to presentation, 17 days to diagnosis for leukaemia, 12 days to presentation, 27 to diagnosis for brain tumours, 107 days to presentation, 120 days to diagnosis for lymphoma. The two-week pathway didn't really contribute. The authors recommend that the role of the two-week pathway in paediatric cancer care should be reviewed. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full papers. Thanks for listening. Music